the blast from our past network. Hey everyone, co-host Corey here. I just wanted to take a quick second and say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Without you, podcasting after dark would not be possible. If you would like to help the show grow, please consider signing up at patreon.com slash podcasting after dark. You can also support the show by purchasing one of our awesome t-shirt designs on our merch store at podcastingafterdark.com or by picking up a copy of Seven Winters Alone by David Irons on paperback, hardback, or Kindle. Just search for Seven Winters Alone on Amazon or click on the link in the show notes. A free way to help out is to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Those reviews are huge for us and really helps get the show in front of new listeners. Again, thank you all so much for the love and support you've given us over these past few years. It really means the world to us. Welcome to our Patreon-exclusive interview series for Podcasting After Dark with your hosts, Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. Tonight's interview is with the composer of Reanimator, From Beyond, Prison, and Puppet Master, Richard Band. Richard Band, thank you so much for being on Podcasting After Dark. My pleasure uh, to meet all of you guys and... uh... And uh, it'll it'll be fun. I I actually reviewed a a couple of your podcasts um, when you guys set this up, and uh, it sounds like a fun show. It's very oh. good. Th- thank oh, you great. very much. Did, did you have? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That means a lot. It really does. Uh, to to say that your music uh, has been the soundtrack of our childhood, uh, our teenage years, our uh 20s 30s and now 40s is an understatement you <laughs> and and uh obviously we had terror vision and prison on our show we reviewed both of those episodes or movies right uh, right and it's really an honor to have you on after all these years of providing us with such great music well it's my pleasure and uh, and i can only apologize for you guys and growing up having to uh, watch those movies i'm kidding you <laughs> <laughs> well you can you can talk to our parents about that <laughs> there, there you go there, there you go my apologies are well, extended I... to your parents then <laughs> <laughs> well I, I might say and i think Corey would would concur um if it wasn't for these movies in our lives we wouldn't be where we are artistically now because uh it's it's definitely had a huge pop influence i think overall yeah and and not just like like this podcast but like in our lives as a whole as creatives as artists you know because we would follow these movies obviously behind the scenes too and you know uh through fangoria magazine we got to learn how the movie making process worked and everything and all the documentaries so but i mean you've been such a a huge a massive puzzle piece like portion of our of our childhoods that it's just like like zach said this is just a, a true true honor well that's your your guys are much too kind thank you thank you (laughs) Well, well, I was going to say too. Uh, offline, you were saying that you're in LA. Have Have you always been in LA? No, 
No. Well, I mean, professionally, yes, but I, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Italy, in Rome, Italy. Oh, wow. I, I came back to this country when I was uh, about 17, 17 and a half years old. But my entire oh, wow. childhood okay. was spent uh, uh, in Europe. Um, left left here when uh, I guess I was about five years old, four or five. My father was uh, in the business. Uh, he was a producer, director, and writer. And uh, we... Uh, he was doing he was uh, uh doing uh, a lot of films and things actually his 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 for years his big connection uh, he worked with john houston um and uh he uh my father uh, wrote the screenplay for the red badge of courage and oh, wow. and oh, worked wow. with yeah and worked with houston on several films but when when it came up to the point where Houston wanted my father to go with him to shoot the African Queen and in uh, in Africa. That's that's where they parted uh, company because my father just felt well. He had a young family at the time, and he felt knowing Houston for years at that point as his assistant, and then writing for him and editing and all this stuff. He knew that uh, Houston was an avid big game hunter and. He also knew yeah. that he wanted to very much go to Africa uh, to to go on safari. So he had sort of this premonition, the way it was told to me, that had he gone uh, to Africa with Houston, that it would have been a disaster because it'd probably take him uh, a year to shoot the film rather than the three months that was allotted. And as it turns out, my father was right because it took well over a year. Everybody got sick, several people died, and Houston was off 90% of the time hunting. So in, in retrospect, <laughs> wow. you know, in retrospect, maybe it was a good idea that he didn't go, or maybe it was a bad idea. Maybe his career, my father's career would have, you know, gone in a different or bigger direction. But instead, we, uh, we went as a family, my father took us to Sweden, and uh, like I said, I was about five years old, so that would have made it like 1958, something like that, and took us to uh, Sweden to shoot a film that my father was producing and directing called uh, Face of Fire at the time. Mm. And uh, so uh, that's how we ended up in Europe. And rather than coming back to, to the United States, we then after that moved to Paris for about a year. And during that year uh, is when Rome, Italy started exploding as and eventually became the Hollywood of, you know, the, the Hollywood of Europe, basically. So uh, yeah. about 1959 or 60, we moved, uh, we moved to, from Paris to Rome. And of course, the 19, all the 1960s is when, you know, Rome just exploded with incredible filmmaking, uh, you know, with obviously all the spaghetti westerns and all the all the hercules movies as well as the italian movies so we spent the next you know almost 11 years in in rome which which is where i grew up and my father was making that, that all is, those uh... and my father was making all those films all those you know yeah, all those yeah. westerns and hercules movies and things like that so it was a, a very interesting uh, upbringing to say the least 
It's it sounds like almost like um, a, a military style, like like you know military kid upbringing. My my brother in law is um, in the military, and my nephews, you know, grew up all over the world. It, it almost seems like it's kind of like that sort of scenario. Not dissimilar. A lot of friends that I had growing up there uh, were military kids. You know, they'd come in with their fathers, you know, for usually like a two year stint was almost an average, uh, sometimes longer. But uh, yeah, a lot of military families. But also you have to keep in mind that at that time in in Rome, there was a huge uh, expatriate community of American artists there. Lots of artists, of course, you know, I mean, Clint Eastwood, um, um, the, uh, the Lancasters, Burt Lancaster, his family. I mean, many, 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 uh, Gore Vidal, uh, mm -hmm. the writer Gore Vidal, um, Arthur Morton. I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, very famous uh, artists, cinema people and so forth. So it was a it was a great community, a great time to to uh, to grow up there. Um, so that's, I was very lucky in that way. I was going to say too, you, that that's quite a journey for someone who was only five at the time to, to kind of be bopping all over the place and then, uh, land in, in Rome with your dad and, and, and your family, obviously. But then, yeah, your father, like you said, was, was making many pictures at that time. And then you, how did you get involved with the music aspect of, of film? Well, the music didn't, the music aspect for film didn't come till many years later. At an early age though, what happened was my father was making a, <clears throat> a film uh, uh, in Spain. It was shooting this uh, film in Spain an American Italian co-production, which, you know, they all were at that point. And uh, mm -hmm. so we yeah. went to Spain. This is when I was about 10 and a half or 11 years old. And it happened to have been shooting during the summer. So I wasn't in school. So my father, if that was the scenario, which was quite often, you know, we would go to different countries, you know, not just shooting in Italy, but Yugoslavia, uh, you know, Slovenia, Spain, you know, wherever it was in Europe. In this case, it was Spain. And uh, and so we went over there and I'll never forget it because it was a life-changing time for me. Is the first night that we were in Madrid, <clears throat> he took us, uh, the family, out for a dinner. Uh, in fact, the restaurant is, I can remember to this day, it was called El Chotis, a fantastic restaurant in this gorgeous uh, square. And after the dinner, he took us to a flamenco show across the square. And it was at that flamenco show that for the first time I heard flamenco guitar being played. And I just fell in love with the mm -hmm. guitar. And it was the next day that I went out and bought myself a guitar and taught myself how to play. That's what started the whole music wow. thing. Not for, not for film, mind you. I just fell in love with guitar yeah, yeah. and, uh, it wouldn't be you know a year and a half or two later that I was forming my own bands and playing around Europe, or around Italy, in, in, nice. around what? Rome at that time. Later, it would be around Europe uh, years later. Do, do you remember the name of your first <laughs> so, band that you you put together? I have no idea. I remember the <laughs> last last couple of bands. That's what I remember. But yeah, I mean, I started. I actually started performing when I was about 12, 12 and a half or something like that, which was 
kind of interesting because uh, I was underage and had to get certain permissions to perform in nightclubs. So it was, and I was playing with with mostly an adult <laughs> adult group. You know, my co-members were not kids; they were adults. So it was it was was unique. Let's put it that way. <laughs> sounds like fun, though. <laughs> I'm sure they looked at you like, yeah, it sounds like fun. I think did, most people were looking uh, at like like we were a freak show or something. They said, "Well, <laughs> what, what is this kid doing up on stage?" Well, nowadays, nowadays it's commonplace. Right. 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 right? Yeah. I was, I was going to say nowadays, like with shows like uh, America's Got Talent or uh, American Idol, that's kind of normal to see a young kind of child protege, uh, you know, playing in a band or, 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 you know, a musician at such an early age. Totally different back then. (laughs) <laughs> totally. <Yes. laughs> you're, you're, you're talking like 1963 or four. No, no, a little bit different then. <laughs> right, right. Well, so uh, I was I was going to say too that you, you, on a obviously Peter Hackman is a mutual friend of ours, and uh-huh. uh, he represents uh, Vince DiCola. And I, I we had uh, we had Vince DiCola on my other podcast, and and he talked about how when he kind of came out to L.A. to be uh, to to work, he had wanted to be a session musician. So did you originally, and and almost like in, like in the band Toto, um, did you originally want to be like a working musician or did, and kind of fall into film or how did that come about? No, no, I, 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 uh, the last say three years that I was living in Italy, I had my own bands, like I said, and, uh, I was. We were doing it really quite well. Uh, we were touring around, definitely all of Italy, but also parts of Europe, um, playing big venues. I was making very good money at the time, especially you know back in the in the '60s, and um, I had no interest in film music per se. I just wanted to be a like a rock star sort of thing, you know, I was, I was a, I was a young yeah. kid, a rock and roller, although I, a lot of the music we were, we were playing and writing back then was sort of more progressive rock jazz type stuff. Uh, so it wasn't until quite a few years later back in Los Angeles that I started getting into film music. But at that point, um, it was all just, uh, I was a rock and roller. That's basically all it was. Although an interesting story and, and timely is, um, and I wrote, I wrote this uh, the day that Ennio Morricone died just uh, several days ago, because in one of my, in a couple of my father's films, he actually uh, did the scoring for. And when I was about 13 or 14 yeah. years old, I remember going to a scoring session at this particular stage in Rome, where they were recording the score for one of my father's westerns, and again, keep in mind, I was a rock and roller kid. I had, you know, no real idea about film scoring or anything back then. I always loved films. I always loved all that, but I didn't know much. Anyway, so I go into this scoring session, and I remember being just blown away for the first time witnessing a scoring session with like a 60 piece orchestra and there and i was introduced to these three gentlemen um who were the writing team and i would subsequently learn afterwards that the main guy was in fact Ennio morricone 
And to that, to that, wow. uh, to, to this day, I'm always, I'm, I'm always remembering that because when I did get my very first scoring job with an orchestra, which I can get into if you want a little bit later, um, course, I remember yeah. I was, I was on an airplane on my way to London to record the score in London. This was my very first orchestral score. And like a lightning bolt, uh, that scoring session that I had witnessed just like hit me in the head. I'm going, oh my God, this is like, here it was like 14 years later. I was about 28, 29 or whatever, <laughs> something like that. And I realized at that point that that was, you know, like, like a kismet uh, premonition type of weird thing of how influencing it actually was back then and it just didn't totally. sort of come come to happen until 14 15 years later but that uh that was my my uh introduction to Ennio Morricone and film scoring wow well pretty, if you're gonna crazy. be introduced into <laughs> if you're gonna be introduced into that genre uh of, of music that's probably the top of the list as to who might influence you so yeah as it turned out to be it it, it actually really was because um to sort of jump back and then ahead uh, as to where yeah. your questions your original questions came from which is how did i how did i get into the film scoring and all that so i come back to this country in 71 and again i was uh coming from an environment where where my band back in, in Italy was doing well. And so I just sort of, you know, dropped everything because we had to come back to this country for a variety of reasons. And um, so when I came back here, I, I just thought I could pick up and form another band and be a rock star. Uh, but after yeah. a couple of years and realizing that about every third person walking down the street had the same dream, I was. I said to myself, you know what? This this is this is sort of crazy. I had a big advantage in Italy, being an American, and having an American band and touring around. That was one thing to be in Italy, but to be back in the United States with every third person, you know, in the in the early '70s, wanting to do the same thing. I realized this is this is like a pipe dream, and it was at that point that I said. Well, if I want to be in music, I have to start studying formally, and then I went and started studying formally at um, at a um, at a college, uh, which was at the time Immaculate Heart College, and then studied privately through several composers for a couple of years uh, during and after that. But it wasn't until years later, till 1978, that um, I realized that. You know what? I mean, I, I love movies and I love music and all that. And, um, you know, but I had to sort of make a decision. What the hell am I going to do with all this? And that's when I got my first score, which was a, a film that I did with uh, Jerry Goldsmith's son, Joel Goldsmith. We co-wrote it. That was our first score. And that was called Laser Blast. A crazy cult yeah. film of the time that you might be familiar with, and that's what start that's oh, what absolutely. started that's what started the whole journey for the last uh, that's gone on the last forty two years or so. This could all be happening right now somewhere on this planet. It's the story of a UFO that has landed and visitors from a galaxy light years away. It's an adventure unlike anything on this planet. A weapon that might belong to us in the future, but is here now. Laser Blast. 
It's the story of the boy who found it and the girl who tried to help him. What about the lump on your chest? And a world that tried to take it away. They didn't know I knew it. I want the town sealed off. Just no news leaks. No news, period. Laser blast. It will blow your mind. That's how it all started. But it was the score right yeah. after Laser Blast that came up, which was for a film called, eventually called The Daytime Ended, that I went and that was the one where I was on a plane off to London that I recorded in London with a small symphony. Uh, you know, it wasn't a full symphony, it was like 40 odd pieces. And so that's that's where I had that, that moment where I realized the importance of the Ennio Morricone experience 14 years prior to that. Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's great to hear as a creative because, you know, you, you, you sometimes you're always trying to like do the next thing or you're, you're maybe you don't feel like you're you're making enough traction in, in your field that you want. But you don't realize that you have some some, you know, building blocks that you're going to be able to, to to utilize later. So, I mean, that as a, as a, another creative and a lot of our, our you know people we listen to are creatives that it's it's great to hear stuff like that. It's it's weird. It's weird. It's uh, but it's that's life. You know, you run into yeah. interesting scenarios and and um, you come across certain people who are very influential a lot of times in ways that you don't realize at the time at all. It could hit you a decade later or a year later or a week later. Or sometimes they're on the spot. You just don't know. Yeah. You just got to I mean, put I, I just, in another, Yeah, exactly. I mean, another short story, because it's, it's, I won't belabor it, but while living in Italy, and I was, I guess, about a, at the time, maybe 11 or 12 years old, uh, the, the famous studio in Italy, in Rome, was called Cina Città. That's where they shot almost all the movies, a huge movie studio. And they were shooting this movie at one time called Candy, based on a kind of risque book for the Times many years ago. Anyway, so there was this guy who had a small cameo part in it. And my father, since he had so many ends at the studio and people and all that, he arranged for my brother to go meet this guy. And this, this guy was a fellow named Ringo Starr. <laughs> and so we, oh, so yeah, we, we're, we're, yeah, yeah, you heard of that guy, right? A drummer, a drummer for some band. 
right. <laughs> some small band. Yeah, not something. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and so we we were we were uh, we went to the studio and we were introduced to him. And this is another one of those weird things where uh, he greeted my brother and I like we were his long lost lost cousins or something, and took us into his dressing <laughs> nice. room, put on a Beatle record and sat with us for like 30 minutes during a shooting and just talked with us. And he, to this wow. day, he was prop to this day, probably the nicest and most assuming person I've ever met in my life. So, you know, you don't know, so cool. you don't know who you're going to meet and when and how they're going to influence you. But it was the first, I, it was the first time in, in that, in my life that I realized that somebody of, who was, you know, part of the friggin' Beatles would would have the time <laughs> yeah. and be so magnanimous and nice. <laughs> and you know, they if, if you were a right. big, big mucky mucky star, you didn't have to be an asshole. You can be a nice person no. and a real person. And and because I had grown up around actors and stars and knew many, 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 many of them through my father's work. And you know, a lot of them were nice. A, a bunch of them were were buttheads. Uh, but when but I was meeting Ringo <laughs> fucking star and this guy was like yeah, you know, like like yes. my brother or something you know it was, it was amazing. <laughs> well, I think I, you know it's it's funny you say that because I I've had a few and Corey has too I've had a few moments where uh, we've met certain people that we admire on a, on a, on a level and sometimes it's 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 more than just casual it's a little more personal and um, and it is nice when you can meet someone that you admire or you look up to and they end up being a legitly cool person. You know, it's not like, uh, just blowing you off like a jerk off. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it, yeah, but, it's, it's, it's an important lesson to know that, that everybody, they put on their pants one leg at a time, like everybody else. It's just yes. an important lesson to know yes. in life. Exactly. And, and, and side note too, you don't have to edit yourself whatsoever on our podcast. You can say whatever you want because okay. it's all good. Okay. okay. <laughs> just, just so you okay. know. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> so, I, I hear you. so I was just going to, I was going to go back to for a second that, um, you know, you, you said the day, the time ended, the day time ended was when you conduct, were in charge of an orchestra, a small orchestra. Yeah. And, and to go from that, that's gotta be a daunting experience right to be in charge of a group like that well i was uh since we don't have to edit this i was scared shitless i mean it, it was this was my first this was my first time with an with an orchestra you know i mean i i, I had no idea uh well i had an idea but i you know so your first time doing a score yeah. with an orchestra it's it's very daunting uh, but I'll tell you when a, after the first uh, playback, uh, you know, he, hearing hearing the music you've written and hear it come out with a orchestra and having it sound the way you in, had intended or better in some cases, it's uh, it was definitely one of the uh, two or three most unbelievable experiences of my life. You know, it's just it's an incredible incredible feeling to have that actually happen and come off but i would but on the way to, on the plane right there i was scared shitless you know yeah. I, I was it's a i was i was scared that's all there is to it you just don't you know a yeah. first time with something like that and 
a lot of responsibility and all that. So yeah, it was it was daunting. When you're writing something well, you for a symphony with with multiple you know people like that, uh, does it come like? And I know you you were happy with how it turned out, but did it turn out how you thought it would in your head, or did does it come out like I know like you write something for a guitar, you can play it, and you're like, okay, I know how that sounds. But when you write something that involves forty people to play it, you don't really know how it's going to sound until you actually do it. Did it? Does it sound the way you think it's going to sound, or is it different? Well. Well, it's it's always a little bit different, but that's that's experience, you know. Now, um, at that time, I didn't have the experience of hearing, you know, an orchestra play back my stuff. I had had smaller groups play stuff back, you know. Of course, I had the bands. I had, you know, a, but my experience was very very limited at that point. So, um, the first time you hear that back, it was, it, it the reason it was. Uh, so powerful and elating is because it did sound the way like the way i had envisioned it in my mind's eye or mind's ear it it, it was it was there it, parts were a little better other parts were not quite what i meant but you know i would say it was 75 80 percent exactly what i was envisioning in my mind's uh my mind's ear or eye. That's cool. That's or cool. ear and yeah. eye. <laughs> yeah, and I and I asked because you know I I grew up um with more of a fine arts background, and so I have as an artist or a creative, I have no experience of like having other people perform or, or you know interact with my artwork. So it's a very like solitary thing, and I just find that you know very fascinating uh, that you can write something to have you know all these people create a, a sound that you created essentially. Well, again, that as I started writing more and more and more it it be uh, you know you you learn by experience and by trade uh you know how to uh, orchestrate arrange and all these sorts of technical parts and creative parts so you you have a a sound in mind and uh it's kind of um how can i say this it's uh, you're the more experience you have, the more you're reassured that what you're hearing in your brain is going to come off very, very close to what you what you're imagining. So yeah. it's that's kind of a, a normal thing. But it's 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 um, it's always something new. It's always a, with each score. It's always something new. And uh, other, otherwise, you know, it, it wouldn't be different than you know, being a carpenter and building the same table over and over and over, you know, right. It's, yeah. Everything's different. Every situation is different. Well, you know, you, you have a very um, distinct sound. It, it, it's, it's become a distinct sound. I, I believe in, in the eighties uh, specifically where you really honed in on, um, on, on, just an, an, an energy that elevates the films you've scored in my opinion. Um, and you obviously worked the bulk of your of your work has been like with your with full moon obviously and um and it's, i'm still trying to i by the way i still have my full moon uh, membership card that i need to show your brother so <laughs> okay <laughs> i did i did at one point I, I was at a i was at a fangoria convention at one point and i showed it to him and and he goes oh you still have that thing and i said yeah i think i'm supposed to get a discount he goes no i don't i don't think you are <laughs> but um, nope. but I, I, jumping ahead 
jumping ahead a little bit, uh, can we talk a little bit about Reanimator and how you got involved with with Reanimator? Reanimator, never heard of the film. Oh, oh, Reanimator. Right. Sure. Actually, you know, actually, before we go into that, I have a correction for you guys. I listened to, yes. as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, I, I didn't listen to your whole podcast on on TerraVision, uh, but I listened to a little bit of the one you had on prison. Mm. And mm-hmm. yes, you guys got something really wrong. So I just want to correct it here. It was kind of oh, funny. No. Let's, uh, yeah, please. It's okay. yes. Not a not a not a big thing. But you were making reference at one point uh, to how you were connecting some of the vibe or whatever to Alien, the music for mm-hmm. Alien, yeah. and uh, and that yeah. you had heard that you had heard or something that originally the movie was tracked with music from Alien. Um, so just now to set the record totally clear. It may have been tracked originally with Alien, but I was not the original composer mm. on Prison. Mm, As okay. it turns out, Rennie Harlan hired another composer because I ha- I was busy at the time on another project. And even though I was slated to do Prison, it didn't work out for a variety of reasons. And the first, and so I never heard or saw a version of the film with any track at all, because when I got called in, uh, it was about three weeks or so into the other composer who will remain nameless for obvious reasons. And the other composer uh, was fired and Rennie Harlan was was decimated. He said, and, and he came to me uh, because you know he you know he he wanted this other guy to do it and he knew I was slated to do it so he felt somewhat embarrassed and he came to me and he says I'm sorry it just didn't work out with this guy can, can you find the time to do this and all this but at that time not only had they run out of time but they had run out of, of money for the score so there was oh, no. very little there was very little money and only about two weeks to do the whole score so I was then given the print. And uh, obviously went right to work because I only had two weeks to do the score. I never heard, there was never any temp track at all having to do with that. There may have been, you know, maybe with the other composer. I have no idea. Oh, let's just let, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit then. Because uh, I think we, if we, if we hadn't, if we hadn't said it on the episode, we'll we'll say it now. That score (laughs) makes that film so much more sub- substantial first of all um it, it is not like a typical genre film in my opinion it, uh, and Corey too we love the score for prison uh regardless yeah. of whether you know there yeah, obviously there wasn't a temp track but but uh and, and i think Corey, at one point you had said like you felt like an influence of some sort uh was on it but the fact that you that you put that thing together in two weeks with with no budget uh, makes it even more special in my opinion. It was pretty crazy. It was, you know, like I said, it was around two weeks that, 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 uh, <laughs> that we did it. And, wow. But we, we had, we had something that was very unique. Um, at the time there was this, this instrument call it synthesizer, sampler, whatever. And uh, 
it was a prototype. Nobody had it at that time. It was something called the wave frame. And uh, okay. my, my cohort on that film uh, was Chris Stone, who I've worked on and off with for many, many years. And Chris is an electronics uh, genius kind of guy uh, and a very, very good composer, by the way. So um, that's why Chris is, is co-credited on the film along with me. So, okay. so, so we went, uh, and so a big part of that film uh, as far as the music is concerned, uh, is due to this particular instrument because it it gave it was something that was so organic and sort of orchestral in in nature in the sounds and textures that we came up with. Um, it, it was it 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 had a, it it was not an electronicy sounding score at all. In my opinion, it was a very organic no. sounding no. score. And that's, yeah. of course, that was, that's always been my forte. I, I don't do, you know, super electronic-y type scores. That's not, I'm more of an orchestral uh, composer. So it had to be something that was conducive to the way, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that I write and so forth. And it, it, so it was, it was a, it was a lot of lucky timing uh, to have that particular uh, instrument uh, available to us, and it's a that's a big part of that uh, that the whole sound and feel of that score is due to that particular instrument. That's really exciting because the '80s really, on so many levels, were bringing out new things or things that haven't really been done before. And that and the idea that you're ex basically experimenting with this, you know, new technology that's got to be. Uh, you know, fun and scary at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, de definitely. You know, but that's, that is part of the fun of it all. I mean, you, you, you always want to be experimenting, uh, you know, whether it's with, you know, samplers, synthesizers, or a standard orchestra. I mean, uh, uh, as one, another example, but in a totally different way, when I recorded uh, the score for Mutant, which I recorded in London, um, I had this crazy idea for a sound uh, that that could only be done with the with a large string section, and it had to do with this idea I had of of the sound of thimbles going up and down the strings of the string section, violins, violas, and celli. And uh, so I went out and and bought uh, like sixty thimbles to take to London for this experiment. And by the way, thimbles are not cheap, just so you know. So I end up spending like $500 <laughs> on thimbles. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and I take them to London, take them to London. And I'm doing this session and I wanted this particular effect, which is in the score. And this is this weird sort of sliding effect, but that's experimenting, you know, with real instruments and uh, the, all the string players, that's they just cool. love the idea. and. And I would say those bastards, they stole at least 80% of my thimbles. I only got maybe maybe <laughs> four, 20 of them back. They stole my thimbles. Oh, well. <laughs> the, the, pri the price of creativity, right? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I hope getting back. Did, uh, I hope you got through it. No, no, that's a loss, but that's okay. It's all in the score. <laughs> <laughs> From the depths of the earth. 
through the shrouded mist. It is coming, the final phase of an accident of nature. Nothing human can have this in its veins and live. It is unexplainable, unbelievable, and uncontrollable. You can't see it in the darkness or hear it in the silence, but you can feel its presence and sense the danger. Mutant. Don't go out there. It's time has come. Mutant. Any one of us could be one of them. There is no place left to run. Nowhere left to hide. And there is no escape. We're gonna get out of here, you understand me? We're gonna get out. No! Mankind's deadliest threat would not come from the skies. Mutant. Whether it's being creative, uh, you know, with like I said, samplers, synthesizers, new new inventions, or or you know, inventing sounds, you know, for for you know for real orchestras and all that. Uh, I mean, look at all you got to do for really interesting ways to make things sound with real orchestra. Look at be it Bernard Herrmann or Jerry Goldsmith, what they could do with an orchestra for unique sounds was incredible. So. Oh, totally. But, you know, totally. you know, so, so you, you have to, that's the whole point of being, trying to be creative with these things. That's the problem today is too much well, of all this stuff being put out sounds the same. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We, uh, Corey and I oftentimes will talk either on air or off air about the fact that, that a score can make or break a film, um, potentially. And, or elevated in the case of prison we we just talked about the movie the keep which is which is uh, undergoes a has a lot of issues uh, a lot of problems mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. but the score itself by tangerine dream makes that movie so much better because of the score um your movies yeah obviously have a very heavily orchestral in influence and like reanimator going back to reanimator mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I think the you could you could hum the first bars of the opening to that film and people automatically know the movie you're talking about just by humming the music to it. I think there are two films that I've done that are like that, and that's one of them. And the other, without question, is Puppet Master. Those mm -hmm. those two films oh, yeah, are of course. are those two films definitely uh, are 
the, the music is intertwined with the movies themselves in a way that they just cannot ever be separated. That's true. My first soundtracks that I ever bought as a kid were full moon soundtracks. And it's because really? I'd watch it at the end of the, the, the video zone on Puppet Master. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I'd watch, I, I always love that. That was one of the things I always looked forward to to the full moon films was the featurette before featurettes were even a thing, first of right. all. Uh, right. It's very right. ground, groundbreaking. Um, and, and there would always be this, you know, the, 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 uh, the plug for you'd have to mail away for the for the catalog and right uh, and I would get the catalog and mail in the CDs the first CDs that I ever owned that I purchased myself were full moon uh, CDs I think it was like Puppet Master and possibly um, uh, oh uh, sorry Doctor Mordred also oh well, yeah know, those two oh definitely like, and and so your your music has 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 been like I said earlier in the show has been a part of our lives. Uh, for a very long time, and and Reanimator obviously is is one of the most memorable across the board. Um, but you've done so many full moon films, and and you pretty much started working with your brother from the get go, right? Yeah, well, we we started. Yeah, well, the very first film uh, was Laser Blast, and uh, yeah. And uh, even though uh, it was uh, the politics of things, how you get certain things is really weird. I mean, back then that was that was the first film that that I did, but it was still under the guise of Compass International, who was which was run by Erwin Yablons. Erwin Yablons and Compass were the people who put out the original Halloween. He made his fortune and yeah. and created his distribution company through that. So a lot of the films in the very beginning were under the Compass International uh, umbrella or flag. And uh, uh, so there was always, on my part, a lot of convincing to do to get those jobs because they were controlled by Erwin Yablons and not necessarily my, my brother or anything. Plus, in the very beginning, like anybody else, you know, you got to prove yourself. You know, you got to prove that, you know, yeah. you, you, what you can do. So... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, over the years, you know, my, my, my family, and this includes when my father was still alive, of course, he's been gone for 18 years now, but uh, we always worked together a lot as a family, and everybody did, you know, their part, and uh, everybody followed their, their own dreams, as my, starting with my father as a producer, director, and writer, and then my brother as a uh, distributor and, and producer and director on some films. And 
me, I was more the black sheep of the family with the music, you know, kept on my own, but I wanted to do my, <laughs> my thing. And sort of that's where it was. Um, and yeah, sure, we work to this day, we still work together. Uh, but uh, a, lot of, a lot of people, well, I don't know whether it's true or not, whether what they believe, but a lot of people assume, you know, that, that I do all my brother's films, which is very far from the, from the truth. Yeah, I do, you know, yeah, maybe, correct. maybe, maybe a couple a year, maybe two or three a year at the very, very most, because, because most of, most of my work is done with other companies, you know, with, uh, whether it's, you know, Paramount or for years with Warner Brothers and other independent films, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a ton of work out there that has nothing to do with full moon or, or back in the empire days or what have you. But there's also no question that, that the eighties, which, you know, in which there was a, a large bulk of my work was done, you know, with orchestra and all that, uh, that a good portion of it, you know, was with empire and, and, and or the beginning with full moon, but that was, and that was, uh, my brother and I. So, uh, it's it's a mixed bag of things, and uh, what are you going to do? That's life, right? <laughs> well, well, you, you 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 know, being it it worked out for your family that you did music because they <laughs> needed someone to score their movies, and you know, obviously, it you were it for not all of them, but just for a lot of the more memorable full moon movies, I would say. Um, and, and you have a relationship we, with a uh, relationship with uh, Brian Usna, right? Because you obviously did uh, the three right. um, reanimator films. Right. Well, with Brian, of course, and, and as, as, or more importantly with Stuart Gordon, I mean, I did most of yeah. Stuart Gordon's films uh, and uh, you know, and when he went into some of the television stuff, uh, you know, I did, Actually, I did the most of the Masters of Horror series. I did three of those, of which yep. the first one for Stewart, Dreams in the Witch House, that actually got me an Emmy uh, nomination, which was very unusual for a, for a horror score to get an Emmy nomination. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, so, yeah. And, and, you know, with Brian, I had done, you know, not only those films that where Stewart was connected, but uh, uh, several others as well. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, another person I've done a bunch of stuff with, uh, I'll, I'll more recently from starting back with masters of horror was of course, Mick Garris, uh, who's, who's a good friend and, fantastic. A, and a fantastic guy. And, uh, in fact, the last, no, was it last year or this year? Night, night, I did nightmare cinema for him, uh, which came out, I think it was late last year. I'm trying to remember. But that was uh, like an anthology uh, film, uh, sort of along the lines of what he did with Masters of Horror. He brought in five top directors, and um, you know they each had their their episode, kind of like the Twilight Zone movie type of thing. And I did, yeah, I, I did mix, and I had the I had the great opportunity to work uh, on another one of one of those five, uh, also with uh, Joe Dante. I did his, and uh, I did all the titles and interstitial stuff. So that was that was a that was a nice job. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I think it's pretty good. Well, I was going to say too, you're you're working, yeah, you you're working with phenomenal people. Um, Stuart Gordon is a 
is a national treasure i think uh it just his his resume speaks for itself but how is that how did you get involved with reanimator how did that all come about jeez it's so long ago i don't really remember but i do remember that um brian and stewart they had brought the the property originally to my father and uh and subsequently to my father and and brother and they were very intent on making this film but they were very insistent on you know Stuart obviously directing and brian being a producer and so forth so the deal that they made was much more of a distribution deal with empire at the time and um somehow in that period of time they uh Stuart had heard a couple of my scores i think one was for the alchemist that i did years before that and mutant and uh so he liked a lot of my stuff that i had done back then and so somehow we met for a dinner or something i, I don't remember exactly but i remember that after the dinner we went back to his place and uh just to keep yakking and all this and we we both discovered that we were both major, major Frank Zappa fans, and we spent the oh, next nice. two, two. We spent the next two hours singing Frank Zappa songs. Um, and <laughs> nice. did, so did, Dyna, kind of, did Dynamo Hum come up in that? Uh, did Dynamo Hum come up in that? No, no, no. That one, that one did, didn't, but um, all the stuff from Freak Out did, and all of that. So, oh yeah. So we we knew we knew that we we hit it off big time let's just put it that way as far as uh, our musical yeah. taste our sense of humor and all that and so it was from that point on that was kind of it <laughs> you know that's kind of uh what solidified the whole the whole thing uh the whole relationship uh, what dates back to that i think what's so cool about that is that it has nothing to do with the the type of music that you put out but uh but what brings people together the connections that they share whether it be a movie or you know a quirky film or a you know a, a particular musician who is kind of you know not is not mainstream by uh but definitely respected frank zappa is is, is unbelievably talented and uh, oh my god okay has a whole it's ridiculous actually my my stepfather was the one who introduced me to frank zappa and we used to listen to his albums all the time when we'd work uh when we do contracting work and so people walk up and they're like what are you guys listening to i'm like oh frank zappa but um <laughs> I, I was gonna i was gonna say hey, that'll get you a good conversation starter um yeah your reanimator is obviously is is a big one but i was gonna tell you too that um the resurrected is is a very much a personal favorite uh, and, and, and a, a very underrated film, in my opinion. Uh, I agree. Um, from the author of Terror, H.P. Lovecraft. From the director of Return of the Living Dead. There's no evil in what I do, so long as I do it rightly. The Resurrected. I struck depths that your little brain cannot fathom. He lived centuries ago. Just to be expected, the dead... Take much blood. But for him, death was only the beginning. The cops found eight 
count them, eight boxes of human remains. Turns out they've had a rash of tomb snatchings over in Europe. Now, this wizard from the past. Don't you understand what's going on down here, Lonnie? He beat death. Has teamed with a man from the present. He's talking about bringing people back from the dead. To create an evil that will last forever. As the hunger grows, my control will surely weaken. The best we can hope for it is to somehow diminish Charles's homicidal and cannibalistic impulses. The curse of the formerly dead is the hunger. And it will not be denied. Chris Sarandon of Fright Night and Child's Play. I've drawn down demons from the stars. There'll be no salvation for thieves. John Terry of In Country and Full Metal Jacket. Jane Sivet of television's The Famous Teddy Z. The destinies of all things living and dead. Resurrected. Th- that that score that the the score the look everything is very it's very beautiful. So um, when you go into scoring these films, like can you talk a bit about that? As far as let's take the Resurrected for example, like when you look at that movie and what 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 influences you on where you're going with the, the, the music for the film? Well, a, a few, a few things. First, first of all, um, when I, when I look at a movie to begin with it, it, it has to speak to me somehow. Uh, and that's one of, one of the reasons I hate, I hate temp scores like they do today is because it obviously influences the way you see a film for the first time. Uh, now I understand why people do temp scores. Uh, there's a variety of reasons today, but in the old days, I, when I started out, and you know nobody had a friggin' temp score. You know they were hiring you to be creative and <laughs> you know and come up with stuff, yeah. not 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 say here we we want it to sound like John Williams. You know, so it was a different time. And um, so when I look, when I look at a film, I'm trying to first see, you know, what's, what's the film about? What's, what, what is it saying to me? And what's it, what's it trying to say to me? And then lastly, how is music going to help out this, not necessarily this, uh, this this particular scene, but why why does the music have to be in there? And usually, on a film, uh, for me, it comes down to the characters that are the characters that are written in the script and their relationships with the main subject matter. So, in the case of Resurrected, mm-hmm. there was a plethora of stuff to work with because one. It was kind of like a a a a, 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 um, a current day investigator type of thing, so it had an, a, an element yep. of suspense. But more importantly, the the subject matter itself had to do, you know, with uh, with going back into the not too distant past, i.e., the last 150 years, and witchcraft and uh, you know, legend and, you know, those dungeons and science. And so it, it, it introduced 
so many good levels and ingredients to deal with um, and resurrection, you know, and all of these sorts of things. So, so not only did you have the, the topical today type characters, but they were having to go back into an, uh, an incredibly rich path of, of, of intrigue and uh, the whole period and, you know, that we were just talking about. So, so it had to have a, um, not, not only uh, a, the music, had, it was, what it was saying to me is not only did it have to have some of those elements of the modern day part, but more importantly, it had to, to show through the history of what goes on in the film as more and more that we discover, it, I, I kept viewing it as going down deeper into the depths of those catacombs discovering more and more about the science and the experiments that were being that were going on hundreds of years ago and and how it was all tied into you know be it the witchcraft as they might have seen it then but it was actually science and the whole lovecraftian uh you know aspect of it so it was it was a combination of things that that were important to 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 bring out in the film so Getting back to your original question, I try to look at what is driving the elements that are driving a, a film that are not the obvious ones. You know, the obvious ones is you see what you see yeah. on the screen and you hear the dialogue, but what's driving all that? What's underneath it that you're not seeing or hearing? And that's always the approach I try to take when, when, uh, when scoring a film. You don't have to be hit over the head with what's going on on the screen or with the dialogue, but what, what what I think makes good scoring is to go underneath all of that and bring out the feelings and the the tension uh, that's driving everything. Does that kind of explain uh, your question? Oh yeah, totally. I, I think it <laughs> more uh, more than I expected because. <laughs> It, I just think it's so cool that there are so many factors that influence the score itself. It's really phenomenal. Well, I think to do good scoring, you got to look into those things. It's it's very easy just to, you know, say, okay, the guy's up there and he's uh, he's chasing a car, so let's put a drum in there and go chaka 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 for the chase. I mean, that's that, yeah. That, what, yeah. What's you know what's big about that? That's pretty easy, you know. And it but it doesn't say anything. All you're doing is, no, is just no, putting it, a, some music behind what you're seeing on the screen. So uh, that's yeah. like, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. You, you, ideally, the score that you're doing, if you really want to score something creatively and properly, you have, to look, you have to look deeper. I have a saying I've been saying for years is that I think, they, I think that, that um, music and film is really the third dimension of a two-dimensional medium. That's what I think it is. Mm, it's it, it's it's not. And forget three D movies for a second. I'm not talking about that. It's just <laughs> your, you know. But it is a third dimension. It's 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 you know you a, a film itself is a two dimensional medium, and music is the that third dimension that that unseen thing that you feel. You know that that propagates and and influences, and that's a, that's a different dimension. That's that's what yeah, I think scoring absolutely. is. 
I, I, I mean, I yeah, couldn't agree more with that. Um, gr- growing up, like I said, as more of a, a visual artist, um, I always loved movies. You know, obviously, because Zach and I do this, this podcast. And but, but it's not until kind of my in my adult life, uh, and especially thanks to uh, friends like Zach, uh, who have more of a musical background, that I'm actually able to uh, develop a music language that I didn't have before, and I'm able to actually go back and and, and further enjoy these movies that like you know i used to love but now i can love on a whole new level because i can appreciate the the score that goes into them something that i just just as a as a as a silly kid who just you know kind of just looked at things on the visual surface level i kind of missed but growing up now and it's it's i love it this is amazing and i completely uh, agree with what you're saying it's even if you don't realize that it's adding a layer to the movie it is still doing that and just being able to analyze it and look at it you can appreciate films on a whole new level and i truly wish i had more of a background of of listening to soundtracks and whatnot growing up as a kid i wish i had that so but well this but is you awesome. know what it doesn't really matter because you your your initial influence got you to this point and this point will get you to the next point. It's all a, yeah. it's, it's all it's all totally. progression, you know. Yeah. So you totally. you're you're good. You're good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and this is I mean, and, and you know, unbeknownst to you, this is kind of like my Ringo Star uh, moment with you. I mean, because you you're oh, cool come as on hell now. too. So <laughs> come on. this is fantastic. So <laughs> no, look, look, and and I will I will concur with Corey because um, you know here's the thing. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, whether someone is on a global scale known like a Ringo Starr or whether they're known uh, to genre fans. You, like I've said before, and I'll say it again, uh, you have had a very positive influence on our lives. Um, this is really a treat to have you on the show. I do do very much appreciate and respect my fan base. I'm, I've been lucky enough to do a uh, you know, maybe a couple of conventions, two or three a year, where I go and meet the fans around the country and all that. And and um, yeah, I think it's really important because uh, you know people really people really like this stuff and they and they respect it. And I I don't a lot of the attitudes I see of people who sort of poo-poo these things. I, I really don't like that. I, I, yeah. I think, I think that, uh, you know, that the fan base is incredibly important, not, not just for me, but for, for, for films themselves, for the genre itself. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's important to, to get out there and, and, uh, try to be magnanimous and, have you know let people know that you're you're human like anybody else you know it's it's pretty simple in other words very simply don't the whole thing in life just don't be an asshole you know you don't have to be no need to be an asshole (laughs) there's there's already too too many of those (laughs) in the world (laughs) too many too many assholes exactly (laughs) there's way too many and and that's the one thing we like that we try to do with this podcast is uh you know like like people look it's so easy to look at some of these movies now under like a 2020 lens and be like oh that was silly or whatever but we we try to bring the love we try to just talk about it and and nothing but love because there's so many you can you can do so many snarky comments and stuff but what but why don't you find the love in it you know and in, embrace what you love and enjoy what you embrace and everything and boy we just you know we love these movies we we love these cult classic films 
Right. No, I no, I I I agree. It's it is it's very easy to poo-poo ninety percent of these films. I mean, they they you know that's it's it's very easy to do. I mean, I've I've always uh, sort of lamented the the fact, and I've been told this so many times. Uh, you know, people say, "Boy, you've, why do you do such great music for such terrible films?" <laughs> <laughs> and I and I go. Gosh. I, I I go. It's simple. I said I I fall in love with each one of them. You know, you got to be to be yeah. creative, and this is actually a truth in life. To be creative, you have to fall in love with what you're doing. You can't be creative and hate what you're doing. No. Yeah. No. So I've got to. So even if it's a, even if it's if it's a turd, I'm going to make that the best, most intelligent, greatest turd in the world. You know. So what? Yeah. <laughs> it's still, still going to have. It'll still have good music at the end, even if it is a turd. But you know what? Right. So what? Well, you know, you gotta, you gotta love it. You gotta love it. Yeah, not, nothing was, good uh, creative ever the... comes out of ne- negativity or hatred. You know, nothing good creative comes out of nope. that. That is the bottom line to it all. It really, it really is. So you know, love what you're doing. It's like the song, love the one you're with, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's the one you're with. If, if the one you're with is creativity, then that's, that's a pretty damn good one to be with. So <laughs> there, there you go. You're muse. There you go. There you, go. Um, you know, it, it, I was just uh, really quick on, on the resurrected. I mm-hmm. uh, had interviewed Bob Romanus a while back and Bob mm. Romanus is known to most people as Damone from Fast Times Ridgemont High, but uh-huh. he had a pretty good uh, supporting role in the resurrected and he talked about the fondness he had for that movie and i just i think like you said going into the the backstory as to why uh how you came up with the music for it and and knowing that and pe- hopefully people will uh, revisit that film because it, it's got it's got a lot more going on than uh than it was seen at the time it was kind of buried in the in the video section at the rental stores and um Definitely it, worth it, revisiting it was sure. no it was and and just so you guys know uh i am going to actually be revisiting it and i'm doing a whole remix of the entire score in the next six months so it's going to be re-released with oh. a with a whole new mix i actually found the original masters to the whole thing and as i've done with a couple of other scores uh like uh, my score for Ghost Warrior recently that came that was reissued uh, where yep. I found all the masters and the uh, the, the new the new uh, recording that it's just I mean it sounds incredible it's so much better you know something that was done so many years ago but just it sounds like it was done yesterday it was it was just sounds beautiful so I am going to be doing the same thing with uh, with the resurrected as well as uh, another issue in with the same idea for from beyond another score that i did with Stuart gordon as you know so i i managed to find yes. those mass those masters so in the next uh, six months to a year those will be coming out as well totally remastered and redone oh that's exciting i mean from yeah, beyond is yeah. also a personal favorite of Corey and i that yeah. exclusive news wow hey, <laughs> that's, that's awesome there, there you go yeah, there you, you guys got an exclusive there that's great (laughs) well i I was gonna i was gonna say too on uh on podcasting after dark you are our first uh music composer and and i and and you may not know this but i told peter this uh via email 
I've been trying to get you on the show for uh, the better part of the year. When we first started, Corey and I talked about getting guests on our show. I said, I really want to get Richard Band on the show just to just to talk about who he is and get his background and all that. Stuff. So, well, cool. Again, well, I think your ego's been inflated quite a bit, but uh... <laughs> I think so. No, no that's, that's you guys are much much too kind, much too kind. Well, to, to so tack on to the, that, the I'll just have re- to say that our yeah. uh, the fans are, are blowing up. They cannot wait for this interview. So you have a, a ton of fans uh, well, through us and, and, and outside of us and everything. It's it's awesome. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, Mr. Uh, Richard Band, I, I just to, to wrap up, I, I just want to say uh, it's been a pleasure having you on our show. Um, you know, Corey and I have been talking about uh, as when COVID lifts and things start to relatively start to get back to normal, um, you know, taking our show because it's gained so much popularity, taking our show to a, to a live audience and, and doing a show perhaps in LA in the near future. Um, you know, maybe we do a screening of one of the, the movies you've scored and we have you on as a guest. That would be uh that would be an honor to have you there. Well, that, that would be a, a great thing to do. And I think it's, so vitally important for everybody listening uh, to have those sorts of things happen sooner rather than later. Wear a fucking mask, would you? Yeah. Don't be don't yeah. be squids. Yeah. Wear a mask. <laughs> don't be an a-hole. Don't be an yeah, asshole. That's right. Wear a mask. Exactly. Uh, very simple message. There you go. Yep. <laughs> that's yeah. the theme of this episode. I think, don't be an there asshole. You go. Exactly. <laughs> Don't be an asshole. I, I think that's the per button on this on this one. Um, uh, Richard, thank you so much My again. My pleasure. And and we'll look we look forward to seeing you in person in the near future. Yeah. Absolutely, thank, thank, we will. Thank you, sir. Okay, guys, this has been a huge honor. Be, be well. Thank you so much. Be well. You too. Stay safe. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to Podcasting After Dark's exclusive interview series with Richard Band. And, as always, thank you for your support. Imagine being one of the last people on Earth, being trapped alone with something not human. Something always watching. Something always waiting. What would you do? Where would you run? Where would you hide? If you were haunted for seven winters alone. Podcasting After Dark presents Seven Winters Alone. A dystopian haunted house story by David Irons. Available now in paperback and ebook.